Our sermon reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 13, 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for today, and I thank you for this place, and I thank you for these people, and I thank you for your presence. And you tell us that you know our frame and that you know that we are dust. And I thank you that you meet us in those places of weakness. And I thank you in that way that you know us, you choose which path you take us on, even if it puts us into facing an impossible situation. And pray that we would see tangible evidence of your presence with us and going before us. And that if it's not easily evident, that you would give us grace to seek it and search it out and look for it. I pray that you would calm our hearts and our minds this morning. Um, petty things that might be distracting or heavy things that are weighing on us. That our eyes would be on you and we'd know that your eyes are on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are um, starting a new sermon series this morning, and we're going to be looking through the book of Exodus at um, a number of the stories that are contained in that book to see specifically what we can learn about what it means to learn how to be free. And let me explain a little bit about what I mean. The, the book of Exodus is an account of the people of Israel being delivered from the slavery that they had been subjected to in Egypt. Um, if you recall the story after the death of Joseph, we're told that a, a new Pharaoh came to power who didn't know or remember any of the great service that Joseph had given to the nation. And so his people slowly fell into uh, racial subjugation, into slavery. And, and of course, so many um, portions of that story are very familiar to us. Um, about how God rescued them from that slavery, from the birth of Moses, um, who was hidden in a basket in the river, uh, to all the plagues, the ten plagues that came and devastated the nation of Egypt, to the miraculous deliverance through the parting of the Red Sea, uh, lots of very popular stories. But what I want us to think about is how so often in the New Testament, it looks back at all, on all of these events through the book of Exodus as a living picture of what it means for us to be delivered from our slavery to sin. And so as we work our way through the rest of this book, we're going to come to see the ongoing struggle that the people had 
uh, to be able to enjoy uh, and experience the freedom that God had given to them. See, they, they are free now from their slavery to the Egyptians, but they're still slaves in their hearts. Often complaining about how life hard was, uh, how hard life was, longing to go back to Egypt to the good old days when we were slaves and beaten and killed, but at least we had leeks and onions to add to our soup. They often complained about as they wandered through the desert. In other words, what we're going to learn here is that though they were free from the Egyptians, they still weren't uh, free from the slavery to the Egyptians in their own hearts. And I think what that pictures for us, and this is what we want to focus on, is really an amazing parallel for how the gospel works in our own lives. Because we all know how the Bible constantly tells us that we are we're free in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Everything is gone. But we don't feel very free, do we? Certainly we don't act very free. In fact, there's a lot of junk that still holds us in its grips. And so what we're going to discover as we work our way through this book is how we can learn to actually be free. Because as we all know from personal experience, it's one thing to take a person out of slavery to something, but it's quite another to take the slavery out of that person. Because the slavery sticks. It, it stays with us. I suppose an awful lot like maybe the, the voice of your parents echoing in your head. You know, you've, you may have moved out on your own. You, you may even have gotten married and, and have your own kids, but you can still be controlled by those voices of shame and failure that echo from their disapproval. In fact, anybody who's ever experienced any kind of trauma in their lives from the, you know, the PTSD of war to uh, the war room of your marriage <laughs> to the disapproving rejection of shame from others, that slavery sticks with us. And we need to learn how to be free from its ongoing control in our lives. And listen, what this passage is going to show us is that freedom from sin, both the sins that we have committed as well as the sins out there that have been committed against us, this freedom is not a one-time act. You know, just believe in Jesus, believe he's forgiven you, and you're free. Well, yes, you are in God's sight legally, but it's far from being true experientially in us. And we're going to learn that that process of experiencing and enjoying and believing and resting in that deliverance comes in stages over time. And even more so that God has actually designed it that way for a purpose. And I, you know, listen, I think this is the one topic where we can all agree. We all want to be free, right? We all want to experience what it means to live out of the freedom that we have. So how do we get God's liberating truth into our lives? That's our topic for today. And I want us to begin by noticing how God shows us here that, first of all, freedom is gradual. In fact, it always takes time. See, notice that this story takes place right after the, the people had left the slavery of Egypt. They hadn't even crossed the Red Sea yet. And the Egyptians were so glad to be rid of them, they were throwing all of their material goods at them. Just take them. Get out of here. We don't want to see you guys anymore. And, and so you would think that there would be this great party going on of a celebration of God's deliverance from 400 plus years of slavery, and yet as they begin to leave, God intentionally takes them on the most 
indirect route that you could possibly imagine. He veers his people off to the right, and he takes them toward the Red Sea in the desert. Now the question is why? Why did God do that? See, if, if God is the one who was orchestrating this great deliverance from slavery, why didn't he just take his people on the most direct route right into the promised land? I mean, it was really only a four or five day journey. They would have been there. They would have been ready to take possession of it. But God says, no, why? Well, he tells us in verses 17 and 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, he did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Listen, what, what is God saying here? He's saying that though I have rescued you from your slavery, you guys aren't ready to handle all the responsibilities that come with that freedom. Not, not yet. See, God knew that it would be hard for these people to engage in battle right away. So hard, in fact, that they would lose heart and they would return back to their slavery. And so what this passage is telling us is that God knows that the longer and harder route it was exactly what they needed even though it was far from what they wanted, because it was the only way for them to experience the freedom that they already had. And I think the same is true of us spiritually today. If you are resting your value as a person in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. You have been set free. It is all legally true of you. It could not be more true of you. Nothing can ever take that away. But see, I mean, listen, why, do, why is it that we go through the process of giving you an assurance of God's forgiveness here every week as part of our worship service? I mean, if you've been forgiven and it's all gone, why do we have to keep bringing it up? Because though it may be true of us legally, we don't act like it's true. We, don't, we haven't lived like it's true. And it certainly doesn't feel very true in the reality of our lives. All sorts of lies have held us in bondage over this past week. And we need to be reminded that it's all gone. We have to be reminded that it's really true, that you really are loved, that you really have been forgiven, that we have been set free. Listen, the forgiveness that God gives you when you rest in Jesus is a one-time forever act that nothing can ever lose. But the experience of that freedom and your ability to enjoy that freedom and to be able to live out of the boldness that it's actually true, that takes time. The experience of freedom is a process for every one of us. <clears throat> See, every single one of us who have turned our lives over to Jesus still have areas where that freedom has not yet been experienced. You know, you may have experienced tremendous uh, freedom in one area of your life and yet have another area that's just simply relatively untouched. And, and you may not even realize it. Because though legally you are free, practically it hasn't hit you yet. You're not living out of the wealth of it. You're still living in bondage. Because the freedom you have, is, it still isn't real to you yet. At least not in that particular area. And listen, so much of Christianity out there tries to teach you that you actually become more and more free as you grow in your faith. <clears throat> and so what that does is it moves all of the pressure onto you. That you've got to have more faith and you've got to get your spiritual act together so that you can be more free. Which ironically just leads to more spiritual slavery. Steve Brown critiques this so well when he says, 
Religion can make you weird. It can also make you afraid. If God is a police officer at best and a child abuser at worst, you had better be careful, and careful will kill your freedom. If the work of Christ depends on your faithfulness, obedience, and purity, you must work to maintain your witness. Maintaining will kill your freedom. If there are angels piling up the good stuff you do on one side in some gigantic scale somewhere up in heaven and demons are piling up the bad stuff on the other side, you'll panic as the scale starts to tip in the wrong direction. That will make you quite meticulous about what you say, think, and do. And meticulous will kill your freedom. But you see, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't tell us that we actually get more freedom as we believe more and do more. Rather, it tells us that we are able to experience it and enjoy that freedom, a freedom that we already have, and we can enjoy it more. All right, the more we're able to bring our hearts in submission to what God asked of us. Listen, this is telling us that you can believe that Jesus has died for you, you can believe that he's paid for your sin, but you can still functionally be in bondage to your own good works. You can be in bondage to uh, having a, a, needing a good reputation in the community. You can be a slave to what other people think of you. And it takes time for God to work into your life the freedom that you already have. See, you can be free externally and still yet be enslaved internally. It takes time to move things from your head down into your heart. And God is the one who says here, I know exactly when and where and how to go about it. You know, many things still own portions of your heart, even though you're legally free from them. I've often, with people, used the illustration of Aladdin. See, what does Aladdin do when he's hungry? Remember the movie? He runs to the market, he steals a loaf of bread, um, and he runs away as fast as he can. All right, well, fast forward to the end of the movie. He's essentially now adopted into the palace of the king. What does he do now when he's hungry? You know, once a street rat, always a street rat. He crawls over the wall, runs to the market, steals a loaf of bread, then crawls back over the wall into the palace because even though he has the right and, and the power and the authority to walk into the kitchen and demand that the chef make him a sandwich, it's just not real to him yet. It's his right but it takes time for it to sink in. And and listen, we all have residual areas of sin that the rescuing power of Jesus has not yet touched. If you have over-desires for sex, for money, for power, for the accumulation of things, see, they're all good things. There's nothing wrong with those kind of things, but when they become ultimate things for your heart, things that you have to have to really enjoy life, then you're going to become enslaved to them. And so you might think you're free, but you're not. There's some part of your heart that's still addicted to them. You know, you can say that Jesus is Lord of your life, while functionally these other things are really still in control. And the slavery to them produces things like anxiety, the need for control, a a deep-seated fear of failure, or, or the constant need of validation. Or in some cases, just a downright compromise of our character as we justify the fact that, well, I just need it. And see, you can be a genuine Christian and still not have experienced any real victory, any real freedom in this particular area of your life. And of course, as our last series on the Sermon on on the Mount showed us, it's equally dangerous for us to think that you're a Christian who's simply struggling with these things, when in fact, you may not actually be a genuine believer at all. And so it's hard to discern 
and we spent a lot of time discerning it over that series. But let me just say this. I think the difference is that for the believer, rather than feeling comfortable finding ways to justify your sins and defending your actions, God will develop a growing hatred of them in your heart if you belong to him. But you see, the whole point here is that these people thought that they were finally free from Egypt. But Egypt was still in their hearts. And for some of you here today, I, I know that you're really frustrated because, goodness, why is God taking so long to bring me freedom in this particular area of brokenness in my life? Why? Why do I keep struggling with that thing so much? Well, very often it's the, it's the, the process of waiting and struggling. It's all part of God's plan to actually bring about that rescue. Often the way that God enables us to experience our freedom comes through the painful journey of actually getting there. Because as we pointed out in that previous series, it's not just information that we need to be freed from our idols. You know, it's not like God just says, well, here's a Bible, you know, it's a manual for Christian living, just go read it, do it, and all of your problems will go away. No, it takes a death, a death to self, to begin to take these things on. And so this now begins to lead us into our second point. And that is that not only does it take time for God to bring us the experience of deliverance, but secondly, freedom is also very difficult, and it's painful, and it's designed to be that way. See, anybody who knows the power of Jesus looks at, at life and says, well, if he can heal me of that, why can't he heal me of this? Why does this have such a stronghold over me? I, I mean, I know God has the power to fix this. I, I know he could just do it today. I know he could just snap his fingers and it would all be gone right now. God, just make it all go away. Why doesn't he? But listen, I think God is introducing something to us here that deep down we already sort of know. And that is that you, we really can't learn the big lessons in life from a book or even from our parents. I mean, the Bible is a manual for how God wants us to live and it's all written down there for us. And he does give us parents to teach us wisdom but none of us are capable of following that manual or listening to that wisdom. And so God has to lead us into a deeper understanding of deliverance by taking us through the pains and the struggles and the trials of life. Because we all know we're going to learn a lot more from experiencing something rather than just reading about it theoretically. You know, for years as, as a pastor, I taught people about grace, I, about their need of the gospel to bring them freedom but it wasn't until I got to the second church that I planted that absolutely imploded in the worst and most painful ways imagining that you can imagine that God began to show me, hey, idiot, maybe you need this gray stuff yourself. Maybe you are more needy than you realized, right? Stop preaching grace and start living as if you need it because you obviously do. But it, it took pain and it took struggle and essentially bringing me to the end of myself for God to show me that I was an awful lot better at preaching grace than I was living with it myself. And listen, we, we all know this. We, we struggle and we strive in this life to get the things that we think will finally make us happy, only to find that when we get them, the promise of freedom they had was just a lie. I don't feel any more free than I was before. And you're still the same old enslaved you that you were. And, and, you know, it seems like every time that you're in, at the end of some long, dark road and you're just about to experience some real freedom, finally, something else comes along and throws you into another dungeon. 
But, but notice here, it's not just because somehow life just sucks and that's the way it is. That's not the reason why we keep struggling. What does he say in verse 18? So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Listen, God here is intentionally taking what would normally be a three or four day journey to reach the promised land and he turns it into a 40 year wandering in circles in the desert and he does it on purpose. Why? He tells us again in verse 17, if they face war, they might change their minds. So God led the people a different way around toward the, the, de the Dead Sea, the desert road toward the Red Sea. But I want you to hear what God is, is saying here, that he intentionally diverted a, a short stroll to the promised land into a 40-year, I mean a lifetime long of wandering in the wilderness with pain and struggle and hardship because he knew that's exactly what they needed in order to experience the freedom that he had actually already given to them. As we noted again in that previous series we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, real freedom in life doesn't come through just doing whatever you want. You're just free to go do whatever. That's not freedom. True freedom comes from restrictions and limitations. I mean, if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer or maybe a professional athlete, you can't just show up and start practicing on people. It takes years and years of limiting your choices and restricting your freedoms to truly experience the freedom of being a good doctor or a lawyer or a great athlete or whatever, a great parent, whatever. Freedom always comes at a cost, and it's a deep cost, and there are no quick, easy paths to get there. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes struggle, and it takes hardship. And listen, we often get mad at God because we look at our circumstances of what's happening and we say, God, how could you let this happen to me? Why would you allow this to take place? Well, it's because it's normally through the painful things we experience, including the sinful things that happen to us that we didn't do to ourselves that God uses to bring about his good purposes in us. As we said earlier, if God could just give us a manual to follow, which he did in the Bible, but we seem to be quite unable to keep up with it, that he wouldn't have needed to bring pain and hardship. But we don't learn things that way. Because what God is actually doing is he's killing us, right? He's killing the lies that you'll ever be able to please your parents. He's killing the lies that another person will truly be able to make you happy. He's killing the lies that your moral efforts are ever going to be good enough to please God. And dying is painful. It hurts. But it's the only way to experience healing and new life. I mean, you, you already know this. The most interesting people that you're ever going to meet in life are those who have suffered the most, right? People who have struggled the most. And, but eventually they've overcome them and they're still standing. That's a story you want to hear. Because listen, if you believe that God loves you because you're faithful to him, if you think that God accepts you because you're a good moral person, then you won't understand any of these stories of suffering. They won't make any sense to you. Because getting things right and living a life free from pain is all you're really after. And that's why you're serving God, hoping he gives it to you. But if you believe that God loves you because of Jesus, then these stories will start to make sense. Because it will drive you to look deeper and ask God, what are you trying to teach me here? What lies are you trying to strip away from my heart? And you'll come to see that what he's doing is he's stripping away all that's old and weak and ugly, and he's turning it into gold. 
Listen, when life is going well, it's easy to believe that God loves you, right? But when life gets hard, you have to believe that God loves you or you can't go on. Because the struggle, it's the struggle that deepens you. You know, when you hear somebody say, Jesus loves you, that's, that's a nice comforting reminder when things are going well. But when you hear somebody say that Jesus loves you in the midst of your life falling apart, that's more than a comforting, comforting reminder. It becomes life itself. And you hang on to it with desperation. Because it's in the suffering. It's in the hardships that we learn these things. I mean, 40 years, 40 years, that's a lifetime of struggle for many of these people. And God intentionally leads them through it in order to experience their freedom. And, you know, it's when you have problems with money or struggles in your marriage or chaos with your kids and everything starts coming crashing down around you that you finally come to see all I've got left to hang on to here is Jesus. And that's all I ever really needed. And see, when you finally reach that place, you're finally free. Because you don't need Jesus plus a good marriage. You don't need Jesus plus obedient kids. You don't need Jesus plus a healthy bank account. All you need is Jesus, and you've got him. All of him, and now you're finally free. You know, we spend so much of our time as Christians praying, God, please take these troubles away from me. Please bring an easier, smoother path into my life. Um, please fix all of my problems. What a stupid prayer that we pray over and over again because we never realize that it's often through the pain and the suffering that he's working to bring about the experience of the ultimate freedom that you're asking him to bring. I mean, sure, God could fix your every problem just like that, but then you'd still be addicted to needing things to go well tomorrow. You'd still be addicted to life not having any purpose or meaning unless I got the things that I wanted and suffering is what frees you from that need so that you're really free I mean listen you know this people who have never suffered are insufferable right they, they, they can't understand your troubles they can't offer any hope to other people and so in his loving rescue God uses the hard things of life to make you truly free so we've seen that our healing takes time and that it's an incredibly painful process. But thirdly, why in the world would you be willing to take on pain? Even if there's a promise that on the backside there might be some potential healing. Because listen, we all know when you're going through the pain, nobody believes that it's going to produce any purpose. All you want is for it to stop now. So how can we embrace the suffering that God brings into our life as part of our rescuing process. And that brings us to our third thing, and that is that our freedom comes through the fire of God. Listen, the heart of freedom is the presence of God's fire in our lives. Look at verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> by the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could <clears throat> travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Listen, what kept them moving through their struggles is that they were following God. Remember what he said in verse 17, God did not lead them this way. But verse 21, rather he led them this way. And see, the whole point here is they, they weren't just facing a bout of bad luck. God was intentionally leading them there with his very presence. 
And you see, we, we've all seen people who struggle in this life, and it, it makes them hard and bitter. And then we've seen others who have suffered greatly, and God uses it to soften them. And I think what God is showing us here is that the difference comes when we can see the presence of God that's doing the leading here. That there's a loving purpose, and, the, and his leading is what's behind it. Because notice the presence of God here. In this cloud and in this fire, it's described as the Lord. And then we get to the next chapter, we'll look at next week, it's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Uh, and, and there are several places in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is really referring to what we call a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. That's pre-incarnate, he, before he had a body, uh, basically what that means. And so, listen, the bottom line here is, is what we're saying is a thing that can, actually the only thing that can motivate you to walk with patience and joy into the midst of any suffering that lies in your path is the presence of a suffering Savior who's leading you there. Because we're willing to follow a leader who's willing to suffer enough to die for us. See, this is no distant God sitting way up there in the heavens watching from a lazy boy chair. This is Jesus who suffered the greatest agony and hardship in order to rescue you from everything that was killing you. And so when this Jesus leads you into the valley of the shadow of death, you can walk with confidence knowing that he's going through it with you. That he even has the ability and the promise to set up a banquet table in the midst of all the chaos swirling around you and to be able to enjoy his peace and his comfort because he's not going anywhere. And listen, this is our ultimate hope. If God can bring about our ultimate good through the ultimate bad of Jesus' death, then he will continue to bring about your good through the smaller challenges of life that we face each day, even though they feel really bad. And his promise here is that to the degree, I think, that you can get this, this glory cloud into your life, all the other glory clouds will get smaller. See, they won't matter as much. Because as we said, if you're a slave to this Savior, then you won't be bound as a slave to anything else in this life. Now, I need to draw this to a close. So let me get back to this. Our freedom comes in stages over time. It only comes through pain and suffering, secondly. And then thirdly, it's a hardship that we're willing to endure because we're following our suffering Savior into the fray. And now finally, the last thing I want us to see is that true freedom comes through the word of God. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Now what in the world is that obscure verse doing in the midst of our story? doesn't seem to really make a whole lot of sense why it's there. But you see, it's a reminder from Joseph that someday God is going to come to your aid. And basically what Joseph was saying is, guys, there are going to be days when it looks impossible. And there are going to be seasons when you cry out, God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? I don't see you. And Joseph reminds him, God will be faithful to his word. And you see, the taking of his bones with him was the people claiming that age-old promise of God. And I think the same holds true for you and me here today. How can you know when everything is falling apart that God loves me and that he's actively working for me? That hope will come only through the word of God, through his promises, through his deeds in the past. God always keeps his promises. And the Bible is filled with reminders of that. But, but I want you to notice here, it's not just knowing about these promises 
It's not just knowing that God is powerful, that God is a deliverer that brings you hope. It's the remembering of them. We access the promises of God by remembering. See, we're called to go back to his word and read it. That's how God saves you. God doesn't save you by fixing all of your problems. He doesn't fix your life by bringing the good life that you've been dreaming about and and making it happen. But he changes your life by fixing your eyes on Jesus in the midst of your struggles. And let's be honest, it's really hard to see God when you're in the wilderness. He's hard to find. But he's always available in his word. But it takes thinking and remembering and processing. The the kind of processing that allows you to say what the converted slave trader John Newton once said, everything is necessary that God sends and nothing is necessary that he withholds. Listen, stop crying out to God to give you things, better things, better life, and make it easier and simpler, and start crying out for him to give you him. Because you don't come to God asking him to give you the things that you need. You come to him as the thing that you most need. And the more you suffer, the more you will come to realize that he's the only thing that I actually need. And the wilderness is there to purge us from all of our addiction to the things that are killing us so that God can truly bring us the freedom that our hearts need. Can you say this morning that God is really good? Even when things are going poorly, the cross and the resurrection prove that the answer is yes. But you have to remember. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, like the Israelites, are chronic forgetters and we we see and experience your goodness and your mercy your promises your love your forgiveness and then we walk into the next dark day and we we just panic and everything falls apart because we we just know that you're not going to be there and that you don't care and that you don't love us and our hearts are just so fickle and we just can't seem to hang on to the promises that you are good and faithful and kind And that you will not leave us. Even if it takes wandering us through the wilderness for 40 years, you will do it in love to make us the kind of people that you want us to be. And I pray that you would help for us to embrace the suffering and the trials that you bring us in this life as part of your plan of rescue. That we would not see our circumstances as our enemy. That we wouldn't see the God beneath them as a mean ogre but that we would come to understand that you truly love us more deeply than we love ourselves and that you will let us endure anything that will refine us and make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name.